First book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 25, is where we will be together. It was in September of last year that we began our studies in the Bibles, first book, and we turn to the second half of the book today as we reach the halfway point here in Genesis 35 and want to study all 34 verses together this morning as with so many portions of Old Testament narrative. They, they come in large chunks and big pieces and we want to bite off another large one this morning as I read the first or actually all 34 verses of Genesis 25 and then pray that God would bless our study of it together and then we will begin our time in it. So here now as God speaks to us uh, once again through his perfect and precious word. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah and she bore to him Zimron, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Letushim, and Leumim. And the sons of Midian were Ephra, and Epher, and Hanok, and Abadah, and Eldah. And these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son, Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. And there Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. And after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled at Be'er Lahai Raoi. And these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Neboath, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, and Abedil, and Ibsam, and Mishmah, and Dumah, and Massah, Hadad, Temah, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedemah. And these are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by the villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people. And they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. And Ishmael settled over and against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? And she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. 
And when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. What of use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we do praise you that you are a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. As we once again see your faithfulness to your covenant, we pray that we would all be found within the family of your Son, our covenant King, Jesus Christ, this day as we cling to him alone. So give us hearts that are ready to receive this truth, free our minds and even homes and lives this day from distraction that we might hear what we must from this text, that I might preach as I must with courage and clarity, that we would see Christ and looking upon him and live. And we do pray these things in his precious name. Amen. Over the last few weeks, really closer to six weeks now, almost effectively since the quarantine began, I've been studying at some detail in a way I never have before, the life of Ulysses S. Grant, that victorious general in our nation's civil war, who rose to, of course, the presidential seat in our nation. And if you were to come across Ulysses S. Grant in the 1850s and hear that he was going to be this victorious general, this victorious president, you would have looked somewhat bewildered and dumbfounded that this man, five foot seven, 135 pounds, would have such power, would have such victory in his life. Because there's this famous story that comes along the way in the late 1850s of Ulysses S. Grant. He's out of the army after he had served in the most recent war with some level of distinction. And he just goes from failed business venture from one to the next. Botched investments, botched plans to such a degree that one day he's found on the streets in St. Louis. And a former comrade comes across him on the streets in St. Louis and he's huddled there in this faded old blue army coat selling firewood. And his comrade says, Grant, what are you doing? And he says, I'm solving the problem of poverty. And in just a short amount of time, he's going to rise to a summit of conquering might. In our country, it's an unexpected, unpredictable rise 
in what was a conflict that often flew under the slogan in our country of brother against brother. As families were divided and the conflict even claimed family blood. And in the same way, we come to what is the Old Testament's brother against brother conflict. We come to what are the rivals and arch rivals in that ancient Near Eastern world of redemptive history. Esau versus Jacob. And of course, if you know anything about the customs of which we'll look at together this morning. And would have heard way back then that it was going to be Jacob that ruled victorious. It was going to be Jacob that conquered Esau. He would have thought, surely not. That's not going to happen. The younger ruling over the older. But we see once again this morning, don't we, that God's grace, God's purpose, God's power often comes unexpectedly in our lives. I suppose you don't have to be an expert, do you, in church history, biblical history, to know that God often brings victory to his people in the most unexpected ways. Don't you know how God loves to show his power in a way that confounds the nations? His wisdom mystifies the rulers. His purpose astonishes the peoples. So kids, I hope that you're going to pay attention this morning because we're going to see how God's grace is indeed astonishing and altogether unexpected and amazing. Students, you're going to want to pay particular attention to this text because there's a truth in it. That not only is one that you need to learn, but you need to recognize goes totally against the counsel of our current culture. That you can just rely on your own strength. You can satisfy whatever your appetites might be. Careless to the consequences and everything's going to actually be better for it. Esau is going to show you this morning that it's little more than just the path to destruction. And of course, true, if you're listening this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, there's a word in here for you. Because what the Bible is going to tell us over and over is that God's people, among all peoples of the earth, are supposed to be peoples of joy, of of expectation, of hope, and victory in Jesus Christ. And this is a text that's going to tell us why we have this bedrock foundation for our hope. And of course, even the original audience, the nation of Israel wandering its way through the wilderness... Would have found peculiar encouragement, wouldn't they? As they were this afflicted, embattled country. To hear once again from this text. That they have been chosen by Yahweh. Sovereign grace has selected them. So even though they are wandering in the wilderness. They have no home yet. They will have the victory in the end. Because God has chosen Jacob over Esau. As that really is the the main point of this passage. We want to emphasize God's sovereign grace in advancing his covenant promise. It's what he's doing in this passage. God's sovereign grace is advancing his covenant promise. Not just from Abraham to Abraham's son. But Abraham's son to Abraham's grandson. And it's against, again, all worldly expectation. All traditional customs. That the younger will rise to rule over the older. And of course, as we'll see, it's God's sovereign grace that gives such a rise. So where we left off last week at the end of chapter 24 is Isaac 
finding a wife named Rebecca. You might remember Abraham is old, he's well advanced in years, he's rich, he's wealthy. He's got some slice of the promised land that he's purchased for a possession. It's his burial plot for his family. So the land promise is relatively secure, but the offspring promise is relatively insecure. The matriarch of the promise and covenant, Sarah, has died. Isaac is getting older. He has no wife. He has no children on the way. And so Abraham decides to do something about it. He sends his most trusted senior servant off to his homeland, Abraham's homeland of Mesopotamia. And there, God directs his steps, providentially ruling over all conversations and decisions to bring this beautiful bride back to Isaac. And it's almost at first glance, the text tells us at the end of chapter 24, they look up almost at the same moment upon each other. It seems to be love at first sight. And so as we move into chapter 25, we move now from the promise situating itself in Abraham's life to now Abraham dying and the promise advancing to the next generation. So we'll look at chapter 25 in three different parts because there's just three different scenes, three different responses we're going to see to God's covenant promise. The first of which is Abraham's resting in God's promise. And what you'll notice, if you look down again at the first 18 verses, surely as even I read the text, it's just full of names, full of family lineage, years attributed to Abraham's life, Ishmael's life. And what I want you to see specifically this morning, is just simply four ways that this part of the passage is once again reiterating God's faithfulness to his promise. So Genesis keeps telling us, you can rely on God, he's going to provide according to his promise, surely for his people. And he does it in ways that maybe you haven't noticed in this passage before. Because first of all, notice the promise of nations. Because if you scan your eyes to these first four verses... In Genesis 25, you see that apparently after Sarah died, Abraham took another wife named Keturah and they had six sons together. Now, what you need to know is that it's entirely possible and even maybe likely that Abraham and Keturah had these children while Sarah was still alive. But the author, Moses, here in Genesis is less concerned about chronology as he's concerned about the genealogy. Because it's showing us what God had promised to Abraham back in Genesis 17, verse 4 and 5, when he changed his name from Abram to Abraham, meaning you will be exalted father of many nations. He's showing us just the number of nations that are coming from Abraham. It's just not the chosen covenant people of Israel. Nations that arise from these other children, maybe most famously you'll notice in chapter, I'm sorry, verse 2, is this nation of Midian that's often coming in the future books of the Old Testament. Not just that, you have the nations that descend, don't they, from Ishmael as well. So you have the promise of nations, you have the promise of peace being fulfilled. Because if you flip back to Genesis chapter 15, It was on that dreamy night where God cut his covenant with Abraham. That near the end of his covenant word in that passage, he says in Genesis 15 verse 15, As for you, Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And notice how that exact language shows up in chapter 25 verse 8 and 9. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. An old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. 
dying at 175, 38 years after Sarah died. Verse 9 telling us Isaac and Ishmael, they reunite to bury their father in the family burial plot there in the land of Canaan, there in the promised land. He died in peace is the point. Full of years. And of course, you know, don't you, that you haven't received this particular promise from the Lord. None of us are promised to die at a good old age, full of years. But there is a promise, isn't there, available to all of us to die in peace as Abraham died in peace. Of course, by trusting in Abraham's ultimate offspring, Jesus Christ, just like Abraham was, through that faith in the Redeemer, our body is laid in the ground and immediately our souls pass on to glory in heaven where we're gathered into the heavenly host above, our spiritual family there in the new city, the heavenly one to come. So I wonder if you might look on your dying day with that kind of contentment and peace. So there's the promise of nations, the promise of peace. Now, the promise also of conflict. Not just peace, promise of conflict being fulfilled. And you see that in verse 12 through 18 as we get this genealogy of Abraham's other son. Abraham's first son, Ishmael, born to Abraham through Sarah's servant named Hagar. You might recall in Genesis 16 how Hagar ran away from the covenant family because of Sarah's abuse and, and harsh treatment of her. And God speaks to her, doesn't he, in chapter 16, talking about this son that she's going to have. His name's going to be Ishmael. Here's what's going to come from him. Verse 12, chapter 16. He will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. Well, verse 18 of chapter 25 tells us he settled, Ishmael settled over against all his kinsmen. So these punctuation points aren't there. This kind of repeated drum of God is remaining faithful to his promise. Promise of nations, promise of peace, promise of conflict. But most importantly in this passage is the promise of blessing. Particularly the blessing that is going to come to Isaac. Because God tells Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 that his electing grace, his sovereign mercy is going to locate itself in Isaac. Not Ishmael is going to belong to Isaac in, in his line. And Abraham is, is resting, you'll notice, in that promise even to the very end. Because look at what he does in verse 5 and 6 before he died. He gave all that he had to Isaac. So all of the inheritance, all of it, every penny goes to Isaac. But he did give some gifts to his sons from his concubines, verse 6. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. While he was still living, he sent them away from his sons. So you see the distinction there, don't you? Gifts to sons of his concubines, all of it to his son, Isaac, protecting and providing for the son of promise, sending the others eastward, it says, to the east country. So God had promised to bless Isaac, and you'll notice by verse 11, after Abraham's death, God indeed blessed Isaac. Uh, verse 11 tells us after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. So God is continuing to make good on his covenant promises already to that first generation of Abraham's family. And now as the promises are passing from that family to the next, we're thinking about receiving God's promise. Abraham is resting in God's promise till the end. Now Rebekah is going to receive God's promise.
I know a few of you, maybe not many of you are maybe longtime readers of that beloved American comic strip Peanuts. And of course, two of the main characters in, in Peanuts are uh, Lucy and Linus Van Pelt. And you may not know that one of the other more minor characters in the history of that comic strip is their younger brother, Rerun Van Pelt. And he gets his name when he's born because Lucy says his birth, another brother, is just a rerun of what happened with Linus. And you may not have noticed it before in Genesis, but Isaac's life so often feels like a, a rerun of his father's life. Because if you just take today's chapter and next week's chapter in mind, you see, of course, Isaac's family also faces years of barrenness. It's in Isaac's family that the younger son is chosen over the older son. It's in Isaac's family that these two brothers are in constant conflict. Isn't it true? Even we'll see the Lord willing next week. It's in Isaac's family that they experience famine and they go down to this land that's ruled by a man named Abimelech. And Isaac tries to pass off Rebekah as his sister so their family might be protected. How true it is that even often in God's covenant people, in the covenant family, there's nothing new under the sun. And the great issue here, of course, is this issue again of offspring. Because Isaac has land, he's got a place. Again, the promised land is relatively secure in this moment through the burial plot. But the great question is, what about offspring? What about children for Isaac? What then about grandchildren for Abraham? And the problem is, notice, verse 21 tells us that Rebekah was barren. And you remember a time, kids, don't you, when Sarah was barren for years and years? And what did Abraham and Sarah hatch up as a plot to get a child? Well, Sarah gives her servant Hagar to Abraham so they can get a son through Hagar. And that turns out terrible. It's Abraham's fall, if you will, in the book of Genesis. And so it's almost as though maybe as the years went by and Isaac hears stories of his brother Ishmael, knowing that he has a different mother than Isaac has. And Abraham takes him along and as a good spiritual leader in the home, tries to remind his son of God's faithfulness to his promise. And it says, son, God has always been faithful to his promise. Even when it appears that God's not going to be faithful, just pray to him to bring about his promise in your life and he will make good on it. And if he told him and taught him that lesson, Isaac learned it. Look at verse 21. In the midst of this barrenness, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. There's no sinful scheming. There's no sinful grasping of the blessing here. There's simply faith-filled prayer to the Lord. And interestingly, in the original language, it's actually more Isaac prayed to the Lord in front of his wife. It gives this appearance that they're there in the room praying together, pleading before the Lord, pouring out their souls. Lord, give us the promised child. And I'm sure all of us who are husbands listening or watching today, don't we long to increase in this kind of spiritual leadership in our home where it's not unusual for us to pray in front of our wives for God's promises to come to pass in our family. 
Well, verse 21, you'll see, makes it seem as though God granted the prayer request quite quickly. It ends by saying, and Yahweh granted his prayer, and Rebekah, Isaac's wife, conceived. But if you just skip your eyes down to verse 26, what you find out is 20 years passed between praying for offspring and receiving the offspring. Of course, the many lessons that we need to learn in the book of Genesis is not just that God is faithful to his word, but that God often is faithful to his word over many, many years. That his timeline is not our own. That in our culture that's always in a hurry, God is slowly, deliberately working out his promises. I'm sure many of us can recognize how often when we are praying to the Lord, we get frustrated if the Lord hasn't answered in 20 days, let alone 20 years. Perhaps even anxiety when he hasn't answered in 20 hours, let alone 20 years. Maybe you're waiting on God and he wants you to wait for 20 years. Can you remain steadfast trusting in his word in such a waiting period? Well, it sure seems like Isaac and Rebecca did. Eventually she conceives, doesn't she? Verse 22 tells us that children struggled within her. If you've ever talked with young mothers, maybe for the first time experiencing pregnancy, there's always this unique joy, isn't there, on their face when the child is twisting about and kicking and moving in the womb. It seems like there's this gymnastics competition that's happening on the inside. But what you need to know is something altogether different is happening with Rebecca. Verse 22 is telling us there's a war in the womb. Because this word struggling is it's a battle word. It's a word that's often used in warfare context. It's more often translated in the Old Testament as crushed. It's used, for example, in Judges chapter 9, verse 53, when a stone fell from above and crushed Abimelech's skull. That's what Rebecca's experiencing on the inside. This war, this battle, this conflict that is crushing. And so understandably, she cries out to God on her own, doesn't she? At the end of verse 22. If thus, why is this so? That's the way it really reads in Hebrew. If thus, why is this so? It's a kind of enigmatic statement, somewhat mysterious question that she gives to the Lord, which it seems right to translate given the context of, of having this meaning, Lord, you've fulfilled your promise to bless me with children, but why does it feel like this? So kids, learn the lesson that God fulfills his covenant word, but see also that the means by which he brings his word to pass in your life can often be a, a difficult one. One that's full of suffering before the promise fully Arrive. So she asked, Lord, if so, why is this? Well, she hears a word from the Lord, doesn't she? And a most astonishing word it must have been to her. Look at verse 23. Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. And the one shall be stronger than the other. Of course, if you ended right there, it's not too surprising This is seemingly her first inclination that she's got twins on the inside. And I remember when one of my younger sisters 
found out she was pregnant with twins. And there was just this incredible delight and stunning, you know, surprise that came as they were there watching the sonogram. And the text says, you actually have two on the inside. And what must uh, Rebecca have discovered when God says there are two within you? But how much more astonishing it would have been when she heard the final part of God's revelation. Not just that two nations are in your womb, there'll be conflict, they'll be divided. But notice the very end of verse 23, the older shall serve the younger. And in many ways in our culture today in the West, that doesn't have the stunning quality that it would have had to Rebecca. But we just don't have that kind of chronological importance in our children. That whoever's born first kind of gets everything, all the leadership, all the authority, which we'll think about more in a second at the end of the chapter. But God, hasn't he already shown in, in Genesis that he likes to upset the worldly customs and traditions and inclinations? He often chooses people that the world wouldn't choose. Even the younger often being chosen, not the older. Wasn't it Abel, not Cain? Isaac, not Ishmael? Jacob, not Esau? Rachel, not Leah. Joseph, not his older brothers. Ephraim, not Manasseh. And that pattern continues, doesn't it? Even as the covenant continues to narrow in certain ways in its scope as the redemptive history continues to David, the young brother chosen, not his older brothers, the young one chosen as the king after God's own heart, which is just another way of saying the young one who knows God's sovereign grace. So you might know how this verse here in verse 23, it becomes this signal marker of sorts that God indeed chooses his own according to sovereign grace. And we know that, don't we? Because there's nothing at this point in Esau or Jacob's life that would warrant them not being included or would warrant them being included in the covenant. God does it freely. God does it graciously. God does it sovereignly. He does it according to Romans chapter 9 to prove that his purpose does not depend on human will, but upon his sovereign grace. And we'll think about that more at the end of the sermon. Well, some of you might know that I have five sisters and no brothers. I suppose few of you, even fewer of you know that one of those sisters is my twin. And we have been asked, of course, throughout the years now, all these consistent questions that people have related to twins. You know, do you have that twin telepathy thing going on? Do you guys have this special relationship that you don't have with the other siblings? But perhaps the most bizarre question that we've been asked throughout the years when I'll explain I have a twin sister or she'll explain I have a twin brother is someone will respond, well, are you identical? And, you know, we think, no, one's a brother, one's a sister, one's a boy, one's a girl. And, and maybe Esau and Jacob were often asked, well, are you identical twins? And what we find out now in verse 25 through 27 is not only do Jacob and Esau have different destinies, they have totally different identities. Because look at what we're told in verse 25. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. You know, the word red is probably better translated as ruddy, which just is this appearance of health. So Esau shows up, and he's not just hairy, he's noticeably healthy. There's this kind of vitality and even noticeable masculinity that is present in Esau from the beginning, which flowers, doesn't it? Even in later life, skip down to verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter. 
a man of the field. He's a man's man, some people might say. But do you remember the last time we heard of a skillful hunter, a mighty hunter in Genesis? So all the way back in Genesis chapter 11, there's a man named Nimrod who built that city, that bastion of evil called Babel. So, so maybe we're supposed to recognize even already these kind of ominous tones in this boy named Esau. Well, what about his brother? Verse 26 afterward, Esau's brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So the conflict on the inside is already continuing on the outside. And so they called his name Jacob. And kids, if you know anything about the kind of origination of these names, Esau and Jacob, it's almost as though in Genesis we get these two titans, spiritual superheroes with names like the crusher and the heel grabber. And they're going to be at war all their life, is what Genesis is saying. Not only are their names different, of course, their identities are different. Whereas Esau is a skillful hunter. Verse 27 ends by saying Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Now, I've actually heard throughout my life so many teachings and sermons on Genesis 25 in this particular passage, and it makes out the comparison between Esau and Jacob to be one of of Esau being this man of immense masculinity, whereas Jacob is more than a little wimpy. You know, he just stays at home and dwells in tents. But it's just not true because the word here for quiet, he's a quiet man, is more often translated in the Old Testament as blameless. It speaks of this moral righteousness, this moral dignity about a person. It's used of Job in Job chapter 1 to say Job was the singular blameless man in his time. And Jacob evidently is like that. So perhaps what we need to see about these two brothers is, yes, there's a different identity. Maybe the right way to understand it is Esau is the masculinity of might. Or probably the right way to take quiet man is, is Jacob is this masculinity of the mind. We're going to see him as a schemer. Always plotting plans. Carefully observant. Knowing what's going on and how to make the best personal use from any circumstance. You may also have heard throughout the years, depending on churches you've grown up, sermons, teachings you've listened to of Genesis chapter 25, that Esau was daddy's boy and Jacob was mama's boy. And that's totally true. Look at verse 28. Esau, I'm sorry, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Verse 28 is interesting in the original because it actually doesn't have this second verb when speaking about Isaac and Esau's relationship. It more directly says Esau, sorry, Isaac loved Esau because game. That Isaac just loved meat. And Esau gave him meat. So yeah. Esau, good. But Rebecca loves Jacob. And of course, those of us who are parents today can recognize this temptation, can't we, even in our own home? I mean, this is the sin of partiality. This is the sin of favoritism in the covenant family of promise. That, of course, is only going to contribute to this divided home. It's a kind of parenting, isn't it, that's going to reflect itself in Jacob's parenting. When he is going to so exalt Joseph beyond all the other sons that he's had, that those sons want to kill Joseph because he's the favorite with the precious colored cloak. Abraham's resting in the promise. Rebecca's receiving the promise. 
And now as the years fly by and advance forward, we see Esau rejecting the promise. Because if you look at verse 29, we don't know how many years in the future. certainly feels like north of 20 years that Jacob's out cooking stew. We know Jacob eventually was a shepherd, and so likely he's probably taking care of sheep. He's out there kind of away from the family home. He's cooking his food. Esau's coming along the way, and Esau is famished. He's hungry. He's desperate for something to eat. Verse 30 tells us, Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. And uh, again, uh, the original language in this passage is, is quite striking in what it's trying to convey because what it's really saying here in verse 30 is something more like, let me have a swallow of that red stuff, red stuff. It's repeated. It's this kind of animalistic appetite that Esau has in this moment. And funny enough, his passion for red stuff becomes the name of even the nation that would come from him, Edom, which sounds like the Hebrew word for red. House colors of Edom, they would always fly red. This red nation that would be the arch rival of Israel throughout the Old Testament got their name just because Esau was desperate for some red food. Well, of course, Jacob doesn't seem to be surprised, does he, by Esau's desperation. Even the subsequent conversation they have in these last few verses of our text reveals the ongoing conflict between the two of them. Jacob doesn't have generosity. Jacob doesn't have hospitality. He says, okay, sell me your birthright, and I'll give you some stew. Now, you need to know something, children, about a birthright to know why this is such an incredible request. You know, we don't have birthrights today, do we, in, in our culture? Certainly not the way they did in the Eastern world at the time. The birthright always belonged to the firstborn. And the birthright was incredibly important. It was a really big deal. It meant you got a double portion of the inheritance. You, of course, came the head of the family. It was the family line that was named through you. The land belonged to you. The possessions belonged to you. All authority belonged to you. So if you had the birthright, you not only got the physical, financial, and material blessing, you often, or you also had the spiritual blessing of authority in that family. You were the leader of the home. It's a big deal. And Jacob says, I'll take all of that. Here, you can just have some of this stew. Well, you can tell, can't you, that Esau is somewhat indifferent. Perhaps that's even not strong enough, is it, to this birthright? Look at verse 32. Esau said, I'm about to die. We'd say, I'm, I'm starving to death. Of what use is a birthright to me? Now, students, you know as well as I do that he's not starving to death. But he's so desperate for a bowl of Jacob's finest chili. That he says, yeah, take the birthright. Clearly, there's distrust between the two of them because Jacob responds, if you notice the next verse, he says, no, you need to swear. This kind of oath, binding allegiance. Yes, I get the birthright. And Esau, of course, says, yeah, take the birthright. And to emphasize Esau's complete indifference to the birthright. Look at these staccato-like verbs that come at the end of verse 34 as he gets this bread and lentil stew. It tells us Esau ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. I think sometimes many Christians 
And even careful readers of Genesis 25 can come to this section at the end about Jacob taking the birthright. And we focus all of our attention on how could Jacob do such a thing. What a deceitful little mongrel this child of promise is. But what you've got to recognize is that as Moses is retelling this story, all of the emphasis is on Esau. And his being completely unworthy of the blessing and the promise. He despised it. He trampled it underfoot would be another way that you could really even translate that phrase. He's completely and utterly indifferent to the things of the Lord. So again, as the original audience hears it, the nation of Israel has begun to begin to see why it is that there is such a rivalry between Israel and Edom. People who cherish the promise and people who despise the promise. But God's Promise is advancing, isn't it? To the next generation through sovereign grace. It's going from Abraham to Isaac and now to Jacob. There was an English actor named Oliver Reed who died of a heart attack while filming famous movie Gladiator in 1999. Years later, about 15 years later, his authorized biography came out and the author was talking about Reed's interesting, shall we say, relationship with his older brother. And in one section of the book, the author says, the two brothers were altogether different in temperament and looks. They were as alike as chalk and cheese, which I suppose is an English phrase of sorts that I don't truly understand. But we do have two brothers that are altogether different, aren't they? Looks and appearance. Identity and destiny. Jacob and Esau. Now what you need to know as we begin to close is that not just are they altogether different in how they lived. Different in what they looked like. Different in what they valued. They become these epitomes of two different responses to God's covenant promise. So I want you to see these two responses as we begin to close. The first of which is, of course, the response of Esau. You can despise God's covenant promise. Didn't we read that earlier? The author to the Hebrews. He's exhorting these Christians to persevere, to remain steadfast in God's covenant grace. And as he's getting to the end of that word of exhortation, he's getting to the end of the sermon, he turns his attention in Hebrews chapter 12 to Esau to warn people in the covenant community about the danger of despising God's covenant promise. Again, this is what we read earlier. The author to the Hebrews says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one who is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. You know, Esau is the kind of person, isn't he, who represents All those whose God is their belly, whose desire is the immediate satisfaction of all of their pleasures and all of their passions, the kind of person that doesn't want to wait on God's providence, the kind of person that doesn't want to wait at all upon God's promise, the kind of person that doesn't even value God's covenant whatsoever. As long as I get what I want right now when I want it, I don't care what's coming in the future. 
I don't care of what God might give me. That would be better. I don't care what Jesus might promise. That would be more satisfying. And students, I want to speak directly to those of you who are part of our covenant community here at Redeemer. I sure hope that you, even now, this day, humble yourself before the Lord and honestly examine your heart because some of you are Esau's. You've been baptized into the covenant church of Jesus Christ. But you care nothing for the grace of our Savior, the treasure of God's promise. As long as you get your sinful pleasures fulfilled now, that's sufficient to bring you joy. Esau is showing us, isn't he? Such immediate satisfaction and sinful pursuit of Pleasures, possessions, and passions is just the way of covenant cursing. Of course, some of you even may be listening today, older in life, adults too have been baptized into the church. And you recognize you too have despised God's covenant blessing. You can despise God's covenant promise. Secondly, you can depend on God's covenant promise promise because we do need to think a little bit don't we about Jacob here at the end of the chapter I mean it's emphasizing as I said already Esau's reaction and his unworthiness for this covenant birthright but what can we say about Jacob's action at this point I do think it's right for us to say that Jacob is clearly valuing in faith God's promise. Lord willing, in a couple weeks we'll think about this more in Genesis 27 when even a greater deception happens But he's valuing God's covenant promise that he wants it. He knows its significance. He knows its importance. But of course he can't wait on it. It's almost as though he thinks he needs to grab it for himself. Lest God actually not give it to him. And isn't there truth that many of us. In our inability to wait on God's sovereign grace to come about in our lives. We just take matters into our own hands. When such a way of life is totally antithetical to living according and underneath God's sovereign grace. Because as Romans chapter 9 reflects upon Genesis chapter 25 verse 23. Thinking about this decree. The older will serve the younger. God's sovereign grace and election that doesn't depend on anything that Jacob will do, Jacob will say, Jacob will think. Even before he's born, God has chosen him. Why does that happen? Paul says in verse 16 of Romans chapter 9, this happens so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This language of dependence, isn't it? Is one that Jacob will learn in time. He hasn't fully learned it yet. He's going to learn it so much that he's going to limp the rest of his life. But this language of dependence is this language of life. It's this language of hope. It's this language of salvation that only comes to people through depending on God's covenant promise. Which you know, many centuries forward, many books forward in the Bible, we find out that covenant promise is a person named Jesus Christ. And in a way that mirrors our text today, Philippians 2 reflects upon the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ, saying he didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. 
what that's saying there is he didn't count the birthright a thing to be taken. What did he do instead? He humbled himself. Took on the form of a servant. He emptied himself even of the birthright that belonged to him by right. To take on human flesh. Be obedient to death on the cross because it was through his shed blood. That he was going to secure an eternal birthright. For all those that would trust in him. An eternal everlasting inheritance. Of forgiveness. Of rest and righteousness. Salvation and satisfaction in seeing him. To any who would depend. On him alone. Are you like Esau? Despising God's covenant promise? Or are you depending on God's covenant promise? Offered to you even this day in Jesus Christ. Because just as God's covenant promise advanced so many centuries and thousands of years ago. Through sovereign grace in the life of Isaac and Jacob. So too does God's sovereign grace advance today. And I do pray that it is advancing Graciously and sovereignly in your life as you depend on Jesus Christ and his great love. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you are merciful and gracious. That we who don't deserve your kindness receive it through the sovereign work of your son, through the sovereign compassion that you offer us in Jesus Christ. So help us, we pray, to find that grace growing in our lives. Help us to depend on it alone, not what we have done, not what we are doing, not what we will do, but only on what Christ has done in our place. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.